This is Give Me Some Truth, a podcast from Walkner Condon Financial Advisors in Madison, Wisconsin. Give Me Some Truth is dedicated to providing an accessible and authentic view into the financial services industry, as well as current events and investment concepts that you can apply in your day-to-day life. You gotta leave your money behind you. Welcome back to Give Me Some Truth. I'm sitting here with Keith. I'm going to try not to flub this again because it put us down like a five-minute rabbit hole a second ago. <laughs> but Keith and I today are going to uh, discuss the future of investing and what we see, uh, the trends, uh, what we see as far as trends and, and things that we're going to see in the future and some of the stuff that we can see now that uh, is just starting to become popular. And to do that, I think uh, it, we are best suited to look at the past and see how investments have changed over the last uh, 20 years or so. So, Keith, I think it's safe to say that, um, you know, mutual funds were born out of this, uh, you know, individual equity situation where people were buying stocks. And then all of a sudden people came up with a great idea of packaging these into a mutual fund. And that's where it was for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, when we talk about investing, a big part of it is thinking about risk and, you know, what, how do you minimize risk? If you buy single stocks and, and you're an average everyday investor, say in the 1960s, and you've got, you know, $10,000 in savings that you're putting into the stock market, if you put all of that stock, you know, $10,000 into one stock and that one stock blows up, you're not going to be a terribly happy investor in the long run. And so what, one of the ways that throughout history, right, people have uh, looked to reduce risk is by pooling together and putting together a lot of money. And so if you get, you know, 100 investors with $10,000, you've got a million dollars, and you can buy a whole bunch of different stocks, and one stock uh, going belly up isn't going to affect you in the long run. And I think that's sort of the original idea of the mutual fund. And what started with you know, what started the mutual fund then was, okay, we need somebody who's going to pick what stocks we're going to buy with that million dollars or $10 million or $100 million billion as as they've grown. And what, you know, happened is you had these people that developed various theories. They would pick, you know, these 10 stocks for their clients, and the hope was that they would outperform. Uh, what we saw is that's not always the case, though. That's true. Uh, you know, there's a lot of evidence that shows that the uh, active selection of equities has not led to excess performance. And, you know, there are people now that are on both sides of the camp. You have your people that are super active and they still believe in active management. And then this whole trend has been towards indexing, saying, hey, let's own a basket of stock with no manager. Uh, Basically, there's a rule around that sort of index or rules around the index. So, for example, the S&P 500 is ranked really by market capitalization. So essentially, it's the 500 largest uh, companies by market size. And so therefore, you know, Apple is very big, and therefore it gets a, uh, a, a higher concentration of the index to it. And, you know, some may have said, and I think with some, uh, I, I think there's some credence to the fact that that doesn't necessarily mean you should invest in something because it's larger, but it just so happens that the way that some of these indexes have been constituted is kind of generally accepted at this point. Yeah, uh, that you end up, you know, Apple is is 10% of the U.S. stock market at various points, or something is a very big company, and, and you see it as well in foreign markets. You know, one company dominates a, a, a smaller country. 
um, in Brazil, I think of Petrobras, right, which got big and, and you know, was a big investment and then uh, dominated. So that becomes one of the ways that concentrates risk. And so the, the argument about active management has always been, or against it, right, has been that they tend to underperform indexes, the S&P, you know, if you're talking about a, something big like the Fidelity Contra Fund or, uh, you know, a Wellington, after taxes and fees. And I think we've talked a lot, you know, investors about the, the fee side, but we haven't always paid attention to the tax implications of owning mutual funds. And so I think that's something that uh, passive aggressive, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm Midwestern, that's where my mind goes. <laughs> passive investing, pardon, has brought to the fore as well as is the tax ramifications of owning say your standard actively managed mutual fund and you know there are all sorts of tax payouts that you can't control with with an active management uh mutual fund yeah that's true there's there's two of them that come to mind uh one of them being is you don't really control the turnover of uh the fund because the fund manager controls that so say the fund manager wanted to dump apple um, and all of a sudden they could dump a whole bunch of capital gains on you unknowingly. Uh, they could dump short or long-term capital gains. So the more that you trade, you know, the worse off it could be for your tax situation in a taxable account. In an IRA account, it doesn't matter, but in a taxable account, it could matter. And then furthermore, the dirty little secret of mutual funds, and I think this is the biggest flaw in the mutual fund structure, is that they are constituted in a way where if you don't participate in the capital gains, but you buy into a fund you might have capital gains accelerated on you. And in that, okay, let's say in this Apple example, let's say that uh, you know XYZ mutual fund manager has Apple in its portfolio and it's had Apple for 20 years in the portfolio and seen significant gains. You buy into that mutual fund and then a month after you buy into that mutual fund, they sell that whole Apple position. Well, lo and behold, you get to participate in that gain that you never actually saw in your statement. You never participate in that gain, but you get to participate in the tax on that gain. And so that's one of the hardest thing that people see in mutual funds. Oftentimes they'll lose money in a year. Maybe they lost money last year in their fund. And lo and behold, they get a tax form that says, hey, look, you got these gains in there. And you say, well, wait, wait a second. I, did, I didn't actually make any money in the fund. Does not matter unless you sell that fund. Yeah. Last year was a great example that you see, right? The, the market was year, you know, for the year down. And yet people are getting big tax bills from their mutual funds. And they're going, this this doesn't compute to me, right? And that becomes one of the, the major kind of issues. And so that is one of the way, right? Because all of a sudden, you know, you weren't expecting these gains. You have to pay 15% tax on that payout. And in some cases, it's you'll see 14, 15% payouts on a, on a mutual fund, right? Um, and you're expected to pay, you know, 15% of that uh, in on your tax form. And that really has a negative effect on your after-tax performance. Well, and especially if you're a higher income earner too, that yeah. could be even higher for a capital gains tax rate and yeah. Medicare surcharge on top of that. So that, that's bad. So, you know, as a result of that, we've seen uh, these exchange traded funds or ETFs born out of kind of the mutual fund concept saying we're going to package up products um, and we're going to apply a, a rules-based based methodology to those. And ETFs have just taken off as an investment vehicle. I mean, I remember when I first started in the industry, ETFs were in, in their infancy. 
Uh, and then now they're just ubiquitous and everywhere. Yeah, and and really, uh, you know, the way we understand ETFs, exchange traded funds, is very similar to how we understand index mutual funds. Right? They're very similar construction. Uh, he died about a month ago, uh, but Jack Bogle didn't get that one wrong. Clint. <laughs> Jack Bogle, uh, you know, was with Vanguard. It was really the pioneer, and and Vanguard also got into the ETF market. And the the advantage of an ETF is that they don't have to, you don't redeem with the with the mutual fund company, you redeem with another investor. And so they don't have to have that, you know, kind of cash drag, they're a little more efficient investment in that regard. Um, and so they, they become more, uh, they've become more and more popular, you can, you know, sell them that day, you know, you don't have to wait until the market closes. There are no cutoff times. They're just a, a more convenient product, I think, for investors and, and in terms of trading costs as well. They allow you to rebalance, which is also nice. So I think there are a number of convenience uh, factors along with the ETF. But a lot of times I think people you know, say, well, I own a Vanguard index fund. Should I own, a, should I own an ETF? You know, well, they're they're very similar in what they own and what they are as an investment products. And I think when we were talking about this, we were talking about sort of mutual funds as investing, you know, 1.0, mu- uh, index funds and ETF is kind of 2.0. And then w- what we'll cover in a little bit is uh, investing 3.0. Yeah, and, and Jack Bogle was actually anti-ETF. He came out against ETFs at the time, but I think he moderated his stance um, over time on that. He, he said... I see no reason, basically, I'm, I'm giving a synopsis of what he said, but he's, he basically said that ETFs are for traders, and yeah. he believes that people should be long-term investors. Uh, but, you know, they are very tax-efficient, so people utilizing taxable accounts uh, are usually better suited in uh, the ETFs than the mutual funds. As you alluded to, though, index mutual funds, it all kind of comes down to trading costs and how much of a difference in expense ratio ratio between the two. And oftentimes there isn't an appreciable difference. And also with uh, ETFs, you know, they do have that transparency where their holdings are published every day. Mutual funds do not have that. So the fund managers don't have to have to report as uh, frequently as ETF uh, providers do. Now that's good and bad. ETF providers, we don't see a lot of active management in those funds. You could have an actively managed ETF, and there are a few out there, Generally, they're on the bond side where they're not as worried about showing their hand. Uh, If you have an actively managed ETF stock manager and that ETF becomes large and they have to to buy some things, then they might not get as good a pricing because people can kind of see what they're doing. Uh, So, I mean, all these algorithms and things like that to take suck out some of those little advantages uh, could put that fund manager at a distinct disadvantage. So that's why you're generally seeing index or index-like products in the ETF wrapper, and the traditional active manager is still staying in the mutual fund space. Mm-hmm. And I think as well, one of the things you know that we can talk about related to ETFs and that kind of liquidity that you get and that transparency is that it makes it much easier to do tax loss harvesting, which again, you know, we made the point at the beginning about how active mutual funds you have no control about when you're realizing gains, so you could realize them when you're a high income earner and have to pay 23.8% tax uh, versus, you know, maybe you want to delay those gains until you're retired and you're only paying 15%. And I think one of the things that, that increased transparency of ETFs allows 
is to do something we call tax loss harvesting. And I know you've got quite a bit of experience doing that for your clients here. It's a uh, lot of fun at the end of the year. Yeah, yeah. Walkner Condo. <laughs> um, and so that's one of the big advantages of an ETF, right? It's, it's transparent, it's liquid, you can sell it, and you can do that harvesting very easily. I think that's one of the questions that we get occasionally is, you know, how come I have 20 different positions in my portfolio? And one of the reasons is that you have that control of that tax loss harvesting on that sort of micro level. And if you didn't have those positions and you really made it simple, say you only had three or four positions, you are limiting the sort of tax loss harvesting that you can do. And then you get kind of stuck because if you want to play any sort of certain way and, and you've giving yourself a real concentrated position, even though it is diversified, that's a, a limitation in your strategy going forward. So, you know, that's why sometimes uh, breaking it out, we're not making things more complex for complexity's sake. We're making it more complex because it gives us some ammunition to be able to uh, monitor and, uh, you know, plan for the taxation going forward in those taxable accounts. Yeah, I mean, we could look back over, over the, you know, 10 years from today, and you could look at the U.S. market, and it'll have gone up, you know, 10% annualized. But one year, you know, it was down 3%. And within that, you know, uh, small caps were down 5%, uh, mid caps were down 4%, and large caps were only down 2%, or were flat. And so by dividing it up, all of a sudden you have a loss in the mid cap and the small cap that you might not have had had you just been invested in one U.S. all-in fund. And then you can take advantage of those mid-cap and small-cap losses, sell those, defer, you know, take some, some tax off the table this year, uh, find another fund that works for those positions, and realize losses that if you'd been crammed into one, uh, you know, all-in all U.S. market fund, you might not have been able to to take advantage of that. Same with the global markets where Asia might move differently in a given year than, than Europe does. Yeah, and we did that. That's a great example. And, and in real life, we did that at the end of last year for a lot of our clients in taxable accounts where we did accelerate some loss in developed markets or in emerging markets. And then we have to go out and select a different uh, fund to subs substitute in there. And then lo and behold, now after we did that, you know, the markets have come up this year and so now that will give us another sort of challenge going forward you know and we always talk to our clients about hey you got to keep track of your tax losses as well to carry forward against your future gains uh, so that we can match those up and make sure that you don't unknowingly give yourself uh, a tax bill when you don't need to and so you got to be proactive in how you're doing this and make sure you're communicating with your accountant if you use one so as far as um, kind of that's kind of where we've gotten here. You know, ETFs have exploded in popularity. Um, our firm uses a significant amount of ETFs. Uh, that was a, an active decision that we made about, I'd say about four or five years ago, where we really transitioned the bulk of our book of business from mutual funds over to ETFs. We've always been had some ETFs, but we're almost exclusively ETFs now. Uh, and then the next step of that really is it's kind of odd because we, we began this whole thing using individual equities, uh, you know, back 30 years ago, everyone had kind of an individual equity portfolio. And then we went to mutual funds, then we went to ETFs. And now it's kind of this trend going back to individual equities. So why would we do that, Keith? Well, you know, I think it gets back to what we talked about with the variability of various 
things uh, or various sectors. And so as the technology, uh, as computers have improved, as our understanding of markets have improved, we start understanding, okay, an index behaves in a particular way, but it's made up of parts, and those parts act in different ways. So one of the things that you'll often see or hear if you're watching the news, oh, the you know banking stocks took a hit today, whereas tech stocks were off to the races, and biotech was also a, a great category. And what, by breaking the, these things down into their individual parts, by taking the S&P 500 and looking at it in different sectors, in terms of different companies, you can figure out, okay, what, what allows us to follow that larger index, but what also, much like for a larger portfolio, allows us to harvest some tax losses during the year. If, you know, we know that banking stocks went down this year, if we own an S&P 500 fund, oh, we can't, we can't sell out just the banking stocks that we own. And, you know, so there's been a lot of mathematical research. The, you know, the, the general belief is that you don't need 500 stocks to mimic the S&P 500. You can do it with a lot fewer stocks. Some say as few as 25 or 30. But, you know, finding that balance where you can get that uh, risk hedging of owning a big pool of investments but also take advantage of the fact that not everything in the market moves in the same way at the same time will allow you more opportunities for tax loss selling. That's right. And, and so this movement now, and they've started to coin it direct indexing. And basically what happens is they're taking a representative sample of stocks and they're saying like in your example, maybe you can get 25 or maybe it's 50 stocks to mimic the S&P 500. And they try to track that index as closely as they can without what they call tracking error. And there's always a little tracking error in there, but they try to minimize that sort of tracking error. So for example, if you are buying a representative stock, you might own Apple as the representative stock or Microsoft as the representative stock. Well, there's some variability in that return between the two. They're not totally, uh, you know, they're not going to have the same correlation coefficient. So you might have some tracking area. Some of that is minimized by owning as close to the 500 stocks in the S&P 500 as you can. Um, you know, so the smaller amount you have, the more concentration risk you have. But this direct indexing offers you the ability in taxable accounts to bring that tax loss harvesting um, or tax loss gain harvesting um, you know, to a more granular level. And this was not really doable years ago because uh, the cost of doing that would be so high because every time you're making a trade, you're either paying per trade or you're paying what we call basis points. So you're paying a certain percentage on your portfolio and it wasn't cost effective to do that. And then also sometimes uh, a lot of these custodians wouldn't allow fractional shares. And now that's changed now. So really what we can do is in many cases by the representative index at a much lower cost. And then we can also have that tax loss harvesting ability as well. So it gives us those distinct advantages. Now, mind you, if somebody has $50,000 in an account, you shouldn't be doing this strategy. This is something for like 500,000, probably at a minimum, this could be 5 million, you know, something like that, where you really wanted to get granular and own those positions. And, and it only really affects you if you're in a taxable account, if you have holdings in a taxable account. If you're in an IRA, you know, these tax loss savings aren't as, as big of a deal. But if you're in a, in a taxable account, if it's, yeah, more than 500,000, uh, you, you have this flexibility. You can defer, you know, that, that cost of taxation. 
um, and you can start doing some of these additional strategies, this direct indexing. Um, and, you know, we've seen the kind of price pressure on trades go down and down. Uh, you, you know, when you were talking about that, I remember finding some old, uh, you know, I think m uh, one of your friends told me you guys bought uh, uh, Yahoo back in the 90s or Verizon back in the 90s. And, and the trading cost back then was like, you know, probably $100 a trade. Right, and, yeah. You know, yeah. and now it's 4.95 and less. You know, it's really a lot less expensive. So that is something that's, you know, definitely changed is that it's so much cheaper to execute a trade uh, that you can do some of these strategies that weren't available to you in the past. Yeah, I'm trying to remember my first trade, I think was, uh, I think we placed it with Scott Trade. And they were, they were just beginning the sort of pricing, uh, you know, like really a a aggressive pricing. And I think we bought it through Scott Trade. I can't remember, it was probably like 30, 30 or 40 bucks a trade. You had to do a kind of quasi online and I, I bought Netscape. Um, yeah, it was, yeah yep. it was Netscape. Yeah, the now defunct Netscape uh, <laughs> Navigator, which was the the best browser for a little time. So, so yeah, I mean, as we talk about some of the, um, uh, you know, kind of version 3.0 of these products, I mean, direct indexing are definitely one thing. I think the fractional shares are, um, you know, is really an advantage there. There are some custodians that allow that. Uh, we use one of them, Interactive Brokers, now that really has a pioneer, uh, they've pioneered this product where you can invest in the S&P 500 at a very low cost. I think they said starting at like $5,000 yeah. as a minimum. I mean, it's kind of crazy. So you're seeing this is truly the best time to be an investor, in my opinion, because you you have this sort of pricing pressure, this competition. Uh, you've got all this choice now, and now you're starting to see the next iteration of these products. I mean, maybe you're going to own 500 stocks in the S&P 500 in your taxable account, and it's going to become normal because yeah. it's you can do it now. And simply put, what happens is then the custodian will send you basically uh, trade logs where we'll execute the trades and, and bring it back to balance. So, uh, you know, some things are going to shrink and some things are going to are going to grow. And then you've got to bring it back to the S&P 500. You know, at the end of the day, you've got to try to track that index as close as you can. So, I mean, it's it's somewhat complex, I would say. But now we have the ability to do that. And uh, that and then I think the next step here as we kind of wrap it up, the next step here is also asset location where I believe that we're going to start to see more and more tools of saying, okay, well, let's really manage to taxation as far as what assets should be placed in what accounts. Um, so some people want to favor income-producing assets in their IRAs uh, because a lot of that's ordinary income. If you have a corporate bond fund, perhaps it should be more suited for your IRA than suited for your taxable account. Now, everyone's situation is different. If you have a million bucks in an IRA account and you have $100,000 in a taxable account, you know, that's going to have a huge bearing on how you can structure everything. Um, but everyone's situation is getting more customized uh, by the, because of technology and the way that we trade now. Um, so you're going to see this kind of extreme customization, which I think is, again, really good for the individual investor. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, ultimately what we, we started off with was the, you know, problem with mutual funds wasn't just that, you know, with that they were a worse investment than the index, but it was after taxes, after fees. And now that we're, we can lower fees on a lot of this customization and then use that customization to lower taxes, we're getting, we're really addressing those two big problems that we identified with mutual funds in terms of underperformance, right? And so I think that's where the future is heading. And then the other thing, um, you know, a lot of this just boils down to better mathematical tools. Um, and I think 
one of the things we've talked about is the best investors are the ones that pick a strategy, stick to it over time. And what these tools are allowing us is to really judge how good our, our strategies are. That's exactly right. So thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate any feedback you have. If you have any questions on direct indexing or asset location strategies or anything else, we're always happy to talk to you. So thanks for joining us on another episode of Give Me Some Truth. you got to leave your money behind you. Raise your hand to the sky. Ask the masses for silence. Look on dead and Advisory services are offered through Walkner Condon Financial Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the states of Wisconsin and Texas. Clint Walkner, Nate Condon, Jonathan Jordan, and Mitch DeWitt are investment advisor representatives of Walkner Condon. Guests on the podcast are not registered, and their participation in the podcast are limited to unregistered activities and will not be providing any advice that is investment-related, nor should any comments that guests make should be construed as giving investment advice. Content should not be viewed as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned or as legal or tax advice. You should always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. Walkner Condon Financial Advisors, LLC, is not engaged in the practice of law. Whenever you invest, you are at risk of loss of principal as the market does fluctuate. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Purchases are subject to suitability. This requires a review of an investor's objective, risk tolerance, and time horizon. Investing always involves risk and possible loss of capital. Long-term care, estate planning, insurance products, and tax advice are not offered through Walkner Condon Financial Advisors, LLC. Walkner Condon works on a best efforts basis and does not guarantee any results. Past performance does not represent future results. Please see walknercondon.com for additional disclosures.